Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What we're going to do this quarter is we're going to read through the book of Colossians. And as we read through the book of Colossians, the word that I want you to think about, we'll talk about tonight, but actually a lot this quarter, is the word enough. Um, That's a word that is present, is kind of ominous in our lives all the time. Maybe it's not that specific word, but at least the concept of it. When is it enough? When am I enough? Right? When have you achieved enough? When are you attractive enough? When have you lost enough weight? When have you acquired enough? When is, when is your resume enough? Right? When will you feel like you are enough? Have, when will you have gotten far enough? Um, uh, when I was thinking about this word enough, I remember most acutely my most terrifying experience of being <laughs> unsure about enough is the middle school lunchroom. When you complete your transaction with your tray and you turn around and the entire social strata is laid out in the lunchroom and you have to decide which table you are enough for, right? Cool enough. And that terrifying moment of enough. Um, Enough is the word that represents the concept of what you have to be or have to have to find rest. This is a universal human condition. Uh, To find contentment to feel satisfied, uh, to quiet the thing in us that is the source of so much unrest. We love the drive that it produces, right? The word enough produces a ton of drive, can make you uh, work really hard. But we also know that it's killing us. The book of Colossians is a letter that deals with the question about enough. And in the church there, what had happened specifically is certain teachers rose up and started saying to the Christians there, are you Christian enough? Like, sure, you have the gospel, sure, you talk about Jesus, but are you really, really Christian? Because there are some super-Christian activities that you're supposed to be doing if you're really Christian enough. And it prompted a lot of problems in the church. And Paul, when he writes into that context and he writes this letter, he writes something that no one expects because he writes to the church to deliver to them and to us a new message about this idea, about this word, enough. Because what he doesn't do is he doesn't write with like the key or the secret answers or the instructions or the techniques of how to be Christian enough. He writes and says, Jesus is enough for you. He doesn't write, here's what you have to do to be enough, to get enough Jesus. Here's what you you have to do enough to get Jesus. Here's what you have to be enough for Jesus. And that's how we normally operate, not just in the church, but anywhere. Every other part of our life is saying, when will you be enough? Here's what you must do to be enough. Here's what you must do to have enough. And that imaginary threshold of enough, the imaginary finish line's out there. And we always think it's getting closer, but it never is. Paul is here to tell us, to tell the church then, and to tell you today, Jesus is enough for you. And it opens up a whole new way of living. So what we're going to do is read the first eight verses, turn with me in your iPhones, uh, to Colossians 1. I'm not even there yet. Let's see. Oh, my iPhone is not working. This is kind of amazing. 
I'm going to scroll through. <clears throat> the Bible app is failing. <laughs> so awkward. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I had to scroll through it. All right. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. So this is a Greek letter to church by the Apostle Paul. He starts it with a typical, this is actually how they started letters then. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now here's where the body of the letter starts. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it's increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray that He would teach us. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You for Your servant, Paul. As we think about just these first couple of verses, as we think about the quarter laid out before us, and our lives here, our lives at home, who we are and how we live, what we need is Your Holy Spirit to come and testify to Your heart the truth of these things so that we could be changed. So open us up to learn from You. In Your name we pray. Amen. Um, what I want to begin by doing is talking about the relationship between the word enough and the word hope that actually sits at the center of this text. And the way we typically order or relate those words to each other is that you hope, we use it as a verb, an activity of kind of anticipating, wanting with kind of reasonable confidence that we will reach the enough threshold. Right? When you apply for a job, you hope that your resume will be good enough. When you go through rush, you hope that a certain group of people will find you attractive and fun enough to be with to institutionalize you as their friend. When you think about religion, you might think, I need to be moral enough or kind of disciplined enough with certain disciplines, and if I'm disciplined enough, then I can have hope that God's pleased with me. Right? Maybe it's therapeutic hope. If, If I can... Conquer, I hope that I can conquer my inner demons if I can just be strong enough or wise enough then maybe I can have hope and conquer them. Uh, the wounds done to us or maybe the failures in us. We hope that we can move past them if I, if I just learn to be strong enough and successful enough. And really that's the way all of life operates. We know that we can't secure our desired future. We know we can't guarantee it 100%, right? We know the future is unknown. But we can work as hard as possible to maximize our chances and minimize the risk. And then all that's left though is that we still all is left is hope. We're future-oriented beings interpreting and deciding and giving meaning to our present actions by the future that we hope to manifest for ourselves. And hope is that uncertain but optimistic feeling that fills the gap between our work to maximize our chances, work as hard as we can, right, to maximize our chances. But there's a gap between the most work we can do and guaranteeing the future. We know it, we can't guarantee it. The thing that fills that gap is our hope, right? Our pursuit to maximize our chances in an unsure world. 
Hope is a verb. It's a thing that we do. It's positively anticipating the future we want and work toward doing the right things to strengthen our hope and to make it feel less risky and a little more likely. Now, here's the thing. That's not how Paul uses the word hope. He says... I always thank God, the Father of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, when I pray for you, ever since I heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And this is where he deploys the word hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a different use of the word. He's using it as a noun. And he's not even using it the main way we use it as a noun. When we use it as a noun, it's still an unsure, anticipated future. Our hope is to win. He says, he talks about the hope that is already laid up for you. He's using the word hope to define a guaranteed future. It's the same idea as something like an inheritance. Something that is already secured for you, it is not in the balance. It is not at risk. You can neither maximize nor minimize your chances of getting it because someone else has laid it up for you. And Paul says, I am so thankful to hear of your faithful and your loving life that spring from the hope laid up for you. He's describing a new way of living. He's describing a life where you live now, today, tonight, tomorrow, because you already have something. You live now from the hope that's already secured for you. And I want to talk about the kind of life that that produces, the fruit of that life, and then the root, where it comes from. How do you get in on it? So the fruit and the root of that kind of life, a life where you actually live from hope that's already guaranteed for you, instead of living for a hope that you might get. So first, the fruit of that kind of life. Paul says this at the, in verse 3. He gives thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints because of the hope laid up for them. The NIV says it this way, that faith and love that spring from the hope laid up for you. Another translation says this, your faith in Jesus and your love for God's people which come from the hope that God has reserved for you. What Paul is saying is this, their faith and their love are the fruit or the result of knowing about their secured hope. We get, and that's not what we expect. Because nothing else in life actually works that way. But everything else in, in life works that... You, well, what, you, what you, we anticipated is that Jesus comes along, that the Bible comes along and says, hey, if you have enough faith, you can have hope. If you have enough love, you can have hope. That's not what Paul says. He says the exact opposite. He says you want faith? Don't look inside yourself. Don't examine yourself and conjure up resolve and desire and make yourself believe it more. That's not how you get faith. As if you can drum up enough faith in Jesus or faith in God and then finally you can feel like, I have hope now. Because I've... It's the same thing with love. 
as if you really, okay, I need to be a kinder, a better person. I need to be more loving. I'm going to be better. I'm going to love better. I'm going to stop my bad habits. I'm going to stop that selfish life. I'm going to work really hard. And then I can feel more confident that I can have hope. That's not the life Paul talks about. He describes the exact opposite. So what is faith? We'll talk about how we get there by talking a little bit about what is faith and what is love. In very simple terms, faith is the ability to map your whole life onto the biblical account of human experience. Big words, big concept, right? That you begin to live your whole life, all of it, begin to understand your whole life, begin to frame your whole life by the story of God's love in Jesus. And so you understand all of your things. Not some of your things, not your interior, this thing called spiritual life that happens inside of your head. Not just that. But you understand all your things. Your ambition, your goals, your friendship, your weekend, your body, your sexuality, how you think about guilt, how you think about people, all kinds of people, both friends and enemies, the way you think about money, the way you think about your failures, the way you think about your wins, the way you think about your future, the way you think about your securities and your family and your baggage, you take it all and you frame it and understand it and live in light of God's story. You build your whole life on His story. That's faith. That's a tall order. Love is a tall order as well. Love is actually how you live, that you see people, the main thing you come across in life is people. Not as objects that you use for your life narrative of self-actualization, but you see every person, people you like and the people you don't like, the stranger that you just met, the professor that you can't stand. You see that the posture you're to have towards all of them is love. People are not self-aware entities that we use But actually, every person is God's precious image bearer, His creation, to be honored and to be loved and to be served. Over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus keeps explaining to His followers that if you follow Me, you'll see that I came not to be served, but to serve. And those who follow Me are going to do that as well. Instead of seeking their own life and your own well-being and think the main thing I'm supposed to do with all of my bandwidth And all of my resources to seek my own life and my own well-being and feel like that's what it's all about. Rather, on the other hand, Jesus' followers will forget their own lives and invest all of their bandwidth and all of their resources in seeking the well-being of others. That's what love is. It's a tall order. And if you think you have to show this kind of faith or you have to show this kind of love in order to get hope, here's what happens. You become an angry and judgmental and scared Christian and you don't know who to talk to or how to be honest with yourself anymore. And Paul says, I'm so thankful because the hope that's laid up for you has produced the fruit of faith and love. The hope precedes the faith and love. Now, how does it work? It's actually simple. Who does the Bible call the founder of your faith? The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the founder of your faith. The origin of your faith and love is not inside of you. It's Jesus. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance is another way of describing faith. It's turning towards God and trusting in Him. Repentance originates 
your personal repentance, turning to God to trust Him, originates in His kindness. So before we can even have faith, He loves. The strength of His hope-securing love is the thing that produces faith. This is really simple. Um, George Lawson, y'all know George. I, th- I wish George was here tonight because I thought of him when I thought about this illustration. Because I googled the weather in his hometown, and it's nine degrees there right now in Minnesota. So thank you, Jesus, for Palo Alto. But um, when you see a frozen pond, where does your confidence or faith to step on that pond come from? It doesn't come from you. If you think that what we're talking about is drumming up inside of yourself the strong sense of confidence and competence to step out on the pond, that's not called faith. That's actually called stupidity. And guys, teenage guys do that. We all know that. Maybe guys older than out of their teens do that as well. Rather, the confidence to step out on that pond in confidence, what do you do? You examine the ice, not yourself. When you gauge the depth that it's frozen two feet thick. What happens is the ice creates confidence in you. It's the object of faith that produces and grows faith, not the subject. The ice gives you faith. The the examination of the ice grows faith. And if you turn from the ice and, and, and navel gaze looking for faith, then you don't understand what Paul's talking about. And what happens is every time you think that's the key, I need to look at myself and get better. You'll act out a weird mimicry of Christian faith. It'll be weird and unsure, and you'll actually not like a lot of Christians. Faith comes from looking at the hope you have in Jesus. And the same thing is true with love. You cannot love others when you're on empty. You can't love others when you're constantly worried if you are or if you have been enough. As long as the enough question still plagues your life, you can't be released from a self-concerned posture in all of your relationships and in your life into an other-concerned, what's best for them, how can I give myself to see their flooring, that kind of posture in relationships. You can only get there if the enough question has been resolved. You can only be present and be unafraid and be truly loving if you're freed from worrying about yourself. If your hope is sure. Faith and love are the fruit. They arise from hope. So the question is, if that's the fruit, where does it come from? Paul rejoices because he says, it's come to you, this thing that's so powerful... And it's also going everywhere else and it's bearing fruit and increasing. It's making people of faith and love in all sorts of places. So what is it? What is this hope? Where does it come from? He uses another important word. He calls it the gospel. The hope laid up for you of this you heard about before in the word of truth, the gospel. Which came to you that's bearing fruit elsewhere just like it's been doing since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The word of truth, also called the grace of God and truth, the gospel, what is it? This is really important. 
the gospel, that word, actually in Greek, means good news. And that might sound simple, but being clear about this is really, really important. It's a word that was actually in common usage in the first century in all sorts of contexts, not just religious contexts. Actually, it was in common usage primarily in political context. It's a term that any time a new king would arise to the throne, they would send out messengers throughout the land delivering, the Greek word for gospel is evangelion, delivering the evangelion, the good news. It's an announcement about something that has happened. They would also send out messengers when there was a great military victory. And the messengers would go out and announce the evangelion, the good news that we want. And here's why this is so important, is because without thinking about it, Christians and non-Christians alike, a lot of times what we think is we hear the word gospel and we think that means instructions, what you're supposed to do, right? No, that is not what that word means. It means good news. It's the announcement of something that's already been done. News is the report of things done. The Christian life is a response to what has been done. It's the announcement of what Jesus has done for you so that you are enough in Him. It's not instructions on what you must do to be enough for Him. You don't earn news. You respond to news. This is why the idea of fake news is so distressing to us as a culture and as individuals, right? Because we need to be sure that news is true. And now in our media age, we no longer can tell when the news is true or if it's fake. And we're distressed as a culture and we're distressed as individuals because we need to know if the news is true. Because you actually build out your whole way of viewing the world and reacting from the news. Paul calls the gospel to reiterate the word of truth, the grace of God and truth, re-emphasizing that the gospel is the true truth. It's the big truth. It's the biggest truth, the all-encompassing truth. It's the news that changes everything. And Christian or not, no one can deny that what happened in the first century to a wandering 30-year-old teacher has affected the world more than any other historical event. The news is significant regardless of what you believe about it. Paul, in every New Testament writer, is not saying and not writing, hey, here's some inspiring fables that give you good examples of how you should live. That's not what the New Testament is. Every New Testament writer is saying to read the Bible is to read writers who believe with every inch of their being that Jesus is the one thing no one expected God to ever be. That He is God who came into this world. That God came and walked among us. That God came and experienced all we experienced. He cried when His friends died. He was hungry. His body experienced pain. He's seen and known our highs and our lows, our joys and our fears. And then He did the next thing no one would ever expect a God to do. He did not come to exact payment for our sin. Sin is the biblical word for the things that we've done, and we've all done them, and we've done them in fear and selfishness, and we've made the world ugly with them. He didn't come to exact payment for our sins. He came to make payment for our sins. He loved us so much that He didn't simply 
overlook our sins. His response was not, no worries. Don't worry about those. Put them in the closet. The guilt, the shame, the indebtedness that we're all coping with. He didn't overlook them. He paid the demands of justice at the cross. For what it's worth, Christian or not, the most detested historical event in ancient human history is the crucifixion of Jesus. It's not fake news. But he still wasn't done. He rose on the third day. We just celebrated Easter. He having satisfied justice and paid for our sin, he conquered death, which is the consequence of our sin. So that not only do we no longer live in fear of our guilt before the law, we no longer live in fear of death, the other thing that terrifies us. Because in him you have resurrection life. That's what we celebrated two days ago. That's the good news. That is the hope laid up for you. Nothing you will achieve at Stanford will be that good. It's not advice. It's not instruction. It's news of what God has done for you because He loves you. Yes, you. Wherever you are, in the place where you think, but not me, no, you. This is the way Tim Keller summarizes it, a pastor we read and listen to a lot here. His summary of the gospel, which is beautiful and you've probably heard before, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is another way of saying it's grace. Paul says it's the truth about the grace of God. It's not for the deserving. God's love is not for the deserving. And if you ask for it from Him based on your deservingness, you won't understand it. If you come believing, well, I'm, I am the type that God's really happy to reward. No, grace means it's free to all. The hymn says, all the fitness, all the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. That's all you have to bring. So how do, we, how do we know both sides of this truth, right? More sinful than I ever dared. More loved than I ever dared imagine. The event, the news of the cross. It's a news story that indicts the evil of our sin. And it's a news story of the heights of God's love. Christian. Are you so busy looking at yourself, trying to drum up faith, trying to be more loving, trying to get it perfect and to get it right and make sure other Christians are getting it perfect and getting it right, that you have forgotten that the only way those things will grow in you is not by staring at yourself, but by staring at the cross. If you're here and you're not sure where you are or what you believe do you want to keep fighting to be enough to have enough or to be enough or do you want to begin to live a different way all you have to do is hear and take in and begin to react to the good news you can either live hoping for enough or you can build your life on the hope laid up for you because Jesus is enough uh, when we were in Yakima last week, close with this. On Friday night, I sat at dinner with a guy named Mark. Uh, and Mark was there with his two granddaughters. Um, they were pretty young. They are probably four and six, five and seven, something like that. Um, he had been an alcoholic and a drug addict for most of his life, uh, for several decades. 
three or four decades. And if you wanted to talk about someone who had no hope of ever being up, he'd given up all his chances. He's in the tail end of his life. There's no chance for him to turn around, to get it right, to be enough, to do it the right way. Right? He's a granddad now. He's not somebody who's like 19, 20, 21, I made some mistakes, there's a lot ahead of me, I can turn this around and I can get there. It's not where he is. He's 60 and, he's no, and he now knows he never will. He doesn't have time, even if he could. And several years ago, he heard that someone had come to the reservation and planted a church. And so this is what he started to do several years ago. He started walking his granddaughters to the bus stop for the church bus. They drive a bus around the reservation and pick up the children. And he would walk to the bus stop, and for four years he walked to the bus stop with his granddaughters every single Sunday, and he would put them on the bus, and he would walk home. And he told me that for four years he watched the bus roll away and thought, I wish there was a church for people like me. And then 14 months ago, he was in the kitchen of the house of the mother of his children. And this is what he told me. He said he was listening to XM radio and somebody had put it on Christian station and he hated that. And he said when he walked in there and he started washing dishes, he hadn't changed the station. He said there was a song on there and it kept kept asking the question of, are you tired, are you tired, are you tired? And as he was washing those dishes, 60 years old, grandkids, his entire life misspent, he knew that he was tired. He was tired of being tired. And he fell down on the floor weeping, and he said he couldn't move because he was tired. Because it wasn't like he had been tired for a quarter. It wasn't like he had been tired for his sophomore year, his junior year, or for three years or for ten years. He has been tired for four years. And in that moment, he believed the good news. And here's what happened. In that moment, he walked away from drugs. In that moment, he walked away from alcoholism on the spot. You know what else happened? In the next week, he got a job for the first time in a decade. Within the next week, he contacted the family members of the people that he had hurt so deeply for years and began to mend relationships that he broke. The next thing he started to do is he started to tell his friends the good news about Jesus. Why or how did that happen? It wasn't because he looked at himself and was like, this is it. I'm going to find the inner strength now to right my life. Right? To get it on the right track. To resolve to be better. He had four decades of self-knowledge knowing that wasn't going to work. He believed the news of the cross that he was loved in spite of who he was, not because of who he was, that even though he had never been enough and never could be enough, Jesus had been enough for him. And here's what happened. Faith and love broke out in his life everywhere. This is what Paul wants for us. This is what Jesus wants for us. This is what we hope RUF actually can be, a place where we hear the good news and the good news takes root and we grow in faith and love because of the hope that we have in Jesus. That's the invitation to you. Most pray.